0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 18. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie, and in this episode, I'll be performing seven tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Micah Edwards, about phantom firefighters, murderous mishaps, cryptic calls, roadway revenants, threatening therapeutics, corrupt agitations, loathsome landscapes. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first four spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Following in one's footsteps can be a great and noble thing. And here, in Micah Edwards' first chiller of the evening, we have a young man who has decided to join the fire brigade to honor his deceased brother. But if his brother is truly gone, who's the strange figure that keeps appearing at all the fires they go to put out? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Eternal Flame. I was seven years old when my brother Frank died in a fire. He was 19 and a fireman and everything I ever wanted to be in the world. My parents told me that he'd died a hero, that he'd been inside a house saving a family, and that they had all gotten out. I cried because it was unfair that they were all okay, but I'd never see my brother again. I knew Frank wouldn't want me to think that way, but that only made me cry harder. "'I remember standing at his coffin at the funeral. "'I put my hands on the smooth, cold casket "'and made a promise, to Frank and to myself. "'I promised never to forget him. "'I promised to follow in his footsteps. "'I would become a fireman just like he'd been. "'I would take up his work. "'My parents tried to subtly discourage me, "'to nudge me away from it. "'They never explicitly told me not to become a fireman.' but they never once bought me anything related to it, either. When the topic came up at family gatherings, they would change the subject. Everyone let them. They knew why my parents were reluctant to have me pursue my brother's path, but I didn't need any external encouragement. I had made a promise. At 18, I joined the fire department. I watched some of the other candidates puzzle over the answers on the written test, "'struggle through the exertions demanded by the CPAT. "'I won't claim it was a breeze. "'The tests were mentally and physically demanding, "'as they're intended to be. "'But I went in with complete assertion that I would pass. "'I'd been training for over a decade. "'I would carry on Frank's memory. "'They hired me, of course. "'I brought the news home to my parents, "'and to their credit, they celebrated with me, "'even threw me a party.' And if their smiles were a bit forced and their attitudes a bit subdued, it was nothing I hadn't grown used to. Frank had always been the golden child. I would have been living in his shadow no matter what I had chosen to do. The fire department was everything I had ever imagined it would be. A camaraderie made all of the long hours and high stress worth it. These were my family, my brothers, and I loved them as fiercely as I had loved Frank. I would have done anything for them. I would have walked through fire for them, even without my protective gear. We were on call one night, a suburban house fire. It was a bad blaze. There was clearly going to be no saving the house. We were focused on keeping it contained, preventing it from spreading to the next houses over. The family was all accounted for, but the daughter was crying, because her dog was still inside. The mother was soothing her, telling her that the dog had been out back, that he'd been scared by the fire and had run away, that they'd find him later. I looked over at the inferno and hoped she wasn't lying, because if the dog was inside there, uh, there was no way to get him out. Then, through the smoke, I saw a firefighter disappearing into the house. I looked around, trying to figure out who it was. Amid the fire and lights and chaos, I had no idea. I'd just gotten a glimpse of him from the back, and with all of the gear on there, there was no way to identify him. A minute passed, then another. We battled against the fire, and it raged back. A large section of the roof collapsed. There was no sign of whoever had gone inside. Suddenly, a basement window broke, and a singed, whimpering dog wriggled its way out. It was burned, blistered, and limping, but it looked better than anything coming out of that hellscape had a right to look. Of the firefighter, there was still no sign. I stared into the window that the dog had emerged from, but I couldn't see anything inside but more fire. I started for the house. One of my crew, Sean, grabbed my arm. You can't go in there. I tried to shake him off. I have to. One of ours is in there. We're all here, man. Look, we're all here. I looked around. I couldn't find anyone missing. I saw someone go in. I don't know who it was, but I saw them. Everyone's out here. You can't go in there. With a roar, the second story of the house collapsed into the first. I punched Sean in the chest, hard. I don't know who it was, but someone was in there. I could have gotten him. Sean rubbed his chest could have gotten killed is all. Go check and see. We've got everyone. It was absolutely right. I checked through the list as we slowly fought the fire down to wet ashes, and we had everyone we'd brought. I saw a guy go in, I told Sean later at the station. I'm positive. Clear as, clear as you sitting here. Sean sighed and looked around to see who else was listening. Okay, look. This doesn't get talked about a lot. Not everyone believes it, and I've seen some guys get violent about it on both sides when there's a disagreement. So you keep your mouth shut about this. You can believe me or not, that's on you. I'm just telling you what I know. Sometimes at a fire, there'll be an extra guy there, always in the thick of things, always all geared up, so you can't tell who it is. Sometimes he'll seem familiar, sometimes not. "'But he's there where you need him most, "'hauling people out of danger, putting himself in harm's way. "'When you look for him afterward, he's gone. "'Sometimes he goes into the building and doesn't come back out. "'Sometimes he just disappears when no one's looking. "'Either way, when he's not needed anymore, he's gone. "'This is, what, some kind of spirit fireman?' "'I mean, maybe. "'Sean hesitated.' I've seen him a bunch of times, and I don't think it's the same guy. I think it's the whole brigade. The souls of fallen firefighters come back to protect their brothers. Sean looked at me like he was waiting for me to laugh, but I just nodded slowly. It felt right. Frank wouldn't have let something as simple as death stop him from doing his job. No true fireman would. After watching my face carefully for a moment, Sean nodded back. We moved on to other topics. We weren't avoiding anything. There just wasn't anything more to be said on the subject. Like he'd said, you either believed or you didn't. I absolutely believed. I believed one thing more, too. I believed that Frank was in this eternal brigade. That even now he was watching out for his brothers. That he was watching out for me. If I left it like this as just a nice idea then things might have been okay. But fire after fire, I found myself watching for the extra man. I started going in further, taking bigger risks, putting myself in dangerous situations. I told myself that I was just committing fully to the job, like Frank always had. But the truth was that I was convinced that when I was truly in danger, Frank would be there for me. I'd maybe catch a glimpse of him through his face mask, see him smile know that I was doing a good job. I saw the spectral firemen several more times, but always at a distance, never close enough to know. I knew Frank was among them. He had to be. But not seeing his face, not knowing for sure, it was starting to make me desperate. I started to watch my phone impatiently, waiting for the next fire to break out so I'd have another chance to spot him And when the alerts came, too infrequently to satisfy me, I took the next logical step. I began to set my own fires. They were minor at first, remote and not too hard to control. But when there wasn't imminent danger, the phantom firefighters rarely appeared. So I began to set larger fires, more dangerous ones. I burned farmland, woods, abandoned buildings. Abandoned was the key... I never knowingly endangered anyone other than my fellow firefighters, my brothers who'd put their lives on the line to unknowingly satisfy my grotesque obsession. But the thing about abandoned buildings is that sometimes they're only officially empty. I always took a look around first. I wasn't reckless. But the squatters had hidden well and I was only doing a cursory inspection. They were shouting from an attic window by the time the fire truck arrived but by that point the flames had entirely engulfed the first floor and were looking up the sides of the house. We raced to get a ladder to them, but as we were maneuvering it into place, a fireball blossomed in the room behind them. It splashed out the open window into tongues of flame, and when those subsided, the squatters were gone. I stood there staring, aghast, at what I'd done when I felt a heavy, gloved hand on my shoulder... I turned, expecting a look of comfort or compassion. What I saw instead, through that soot-smeared face mask, was the face of a corpse staring at me with infinitely ancient eyes. The phantom firefighter's eyes had seen pain and horrors untold, yet they looked at me with regret as he reached out an accusing finger and pressed it slowly into my chest. His fingers pressed through my protective layers, my clothes and my flesh with equal ease. I felt its burning pain as it pierced my heart, but I could not make a sound or even avert my eyes from the awful, sad gaze of the creature before me. He withdrew his hand as slowly as it had advanced. The pain subsided, but it had left a dull ache in my heart and a terrible knowledge in my mind. These specters were indeed the souls of dead firefighters, but not those who had fallen in the line of duty. Their ranks were filled with the derelicts, the cowards, and the failures. They had neglected their sworn task in life, and so they were cursed in death to uphold it, forever fighting in a vain attempt to absolve themselves of their mistakes. Frank was never among their number, but one day I now would be.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I dot
1: I hope you enjoyed "Eternal Flame" as written by author Micah Edwards, and performed by Yours Truly. Isn't there an old saying, "Let the dead be dead"? Focus on the living. Maybe it was Abraham Lincoln. After all, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Am I right? But even so, maybe our unfortunate friend should have taken that advice instead. I'm sure he's in for a firestorm of troubles. Oh, excuse me, no pun intended, just heavily inferred. Now, don't go anywhere. We've got another dose of darkness coming right up. But first, I'd like to inform you that if that first tale was to your liking, and you'd love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash edwards. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash edwards. You'll be redirected to his profile on Amazon, where there are plenty of blog posts, books to view, or just read a little bit more about the fellow with the big smile, who just wants to make your sleep a little little more uneasy. Oh, and that link comes with a code that donates a small portion of your Amazon purchase to me and the crew. If you use it and decide to buy anything, it's just another way you can help support this show. And your support means a lot to us. For more of Micah Edwards, you can also visit our official horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com where you'll find dozens of his prior tales, as featured on this show and elsewhere, absolutely free. Alongside an author profile where you can connect with him, and where you'll find links to his website, social media, and more. If you do decide to stop by his profile or check out his work, please leave Micah a kind word and let him know you heard about him on the show, and that me, Otis, sent you. We'd both really appreciate it. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Now, on to our next terrifying tale. As you know, accidents happen. We've all experienced them, but some can be a bit more life-changing than others. For some, it can mean the difference between life and death. As in, one lives and one dies. In our second tale from Micah Edwards, we run into exactly this sort of conundrum. But what seems like a solution may only be the beginning of real problems. Without further ado, I present to you... No Sense Ruining Two Lives. I'm here to make a confession. I don't know if it'll help, if anything. It'll we'll help at this point, but I'm out of ideas not a time, so here goes. A year ago, I was at a party, a decent-sized shindig bunch of working folks letting loose in the weekend. The alcohol was flowing freely, the music was going, everyone was having a good time. I knew about half the people there, and the rest of them seemed like decent folks, so it was a good time. The house we were at was out in the country, and I had about a half-hour drive to get home, so when I started yawning around midnight, I figured I'd better say my goodbyes and get out of there. I said this then, and I'll say it now. I was not drunk. I was absolutely fine to drive. I was within the lines. I was alert. I was unimpaired. I have no idea where that guy came from when he stepped out into the road. No idea what he was thinking. Probably he was the one who was drunk, or high, or something. He stepped directly out in front of my car. "'dark clothes out of shadow and into my headlights. "'Had my foot on the accelerator when I hit him. "'Never even had a chance to move to the brake. "'The car slammed into him, and I heard his legs snap. "'Saw him swept sideways up the hood. "'The side of his face smashed into the windshield "'and for a split second, we were eyeball to eyeball, "'staring right into each other's terrified faces "'before his momentum flung him over the car crashed down into the road behind. I slammed on the brakes then, of course, screeching to a stop a few hundred feet ahead. I remember my initial thoughts distinctly. First, of course, was, ''Oh, my God, I hit a guy!'' Followed immediately by, ''It can't have been that bad. The airbags didn't go off.'' Even as I got out of the car and ran back to him, though, I knew I was lying to myself. It had definitely been that bad. There was no way he was okay. It was just a crumpled heap on the ground when I got there. There was less blood than I'd expected, but more damage. He lay there like a discarded doll, arms and legs, flung out at random angles. The brakes were apparent in the way they bent. One leg was folded entirely under his body... The fingers of one hand twisted apart like the roots of a tree. Broken bits of teeth gleamed in a bloody smear where he had landed on his face and skidded along the road, and his neck appeared broken. His hair was shoulder-length, maybe a little longer, and matted to his face with blood. I moved it aside to check for a pulse, and as I knelt to touch his face, he whimpered. drawn-out sound. He was alive. Despite everything, he was alive. I staggered back in surprise, falling backward onto the pavement. The broken pile of rags in front of me twitched, mewling again. Help, help, he whispered. I picked myself back up to my knees and leaned over him. Hey, 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 man, it's going to be okay. Did... He swallowed painfully, and blood ran from the corner of his mouth. You hit me? It was an accident, man. I I never saw you. Call... call help. I took my phone out and started to dial 911, but as I pressed the 9, the enormity of what I had done hit me. I was going to go to jail for this. My money for the rest of my life was going to go to this guy's hospital bills. And... Would the cops believe I wasn't drunk? I'd been drinking at a party, after all. So there'd be that on top of it. And the guy's life was screwed. He still hadn't moved a muscle below his neck. Even if he survived, he'd be paralyzed. He looked to be maybe in his early 20s, so that gave him, what, six decades of being trapped in a shattered body in a wheelchair to look forward to? never having a real relationship, being an object of pity and half-hidden stares for the rest of his life. And it was an accident. It wasn't his fault, but it wasn't mine either. His life was over, and I was sorry about that, but there was no reason for me to join him. One of us could still make it out of this. I put the phone down at my side. He stared at me from the ground, blood... "'mucus and tears running down his torn face. "'His eyes were focused, though, and we locked gazes for the second time. "'Just relax,' I told him, "'reaching out to pinch his nose shut and cover his mouth. "'Help's coming. Shh. Just relax.' "'I looked away as I cut off his hair "'and held his head down against the asphalt. "'Although his body was paralyzed, he thrashed his head a couple of times.' and made muffled noises behind my hand, but even those stopped quickly. I held him there for several minutes after he stopped moving, my fingers pressing into the ruin of his cheek before I finally looked back. His green eyes were staring up sightlessly, and I closed them before letting go of his mouth and nose. I rolled him off into the ditch on the side of the road. The whole incident took less than ten minutes, and no other cars had come by. They were going to find his body sooner or later, I was sure, but there'd be nothing to connect it to me. A car's headlight was smashed in, and the windshield, had a round impression, crushed into it where his head had hit. It was the only major damage, though, along with various dents and bumps along the hood and roof. I drove to a 24-hour automatic car wash and sat inside my car as the brushes whisked away any evidence that it had been a person I hit, As the soap sprayed across the windshield, I saw several strands of his long brown hair caught in the cracked windshield, highlighted against the white background, and I shuddered. Then the brushes passed over the windshield, and the hair was gone. I parked the car in the garage when I got home and went straight to bed. I slept better than I expected. Although I had troubled dreams, they were of arresting officers, not of the guy I hit. My concern, even in my subconscious, was just of getting caught. The next day, I drove the car into the metal tool rack at the far end of the garage. The thin metal struts bent and toppled forward, dropping cans of paint, jars of screws, and heavy boxes of tools all over the windshield, in the hood of the car. I backed it out, took it to the shop still dripping with drying paint and told them I'd hit it and drive instead of reverse. They laughed at me and said they could have it fixed up by tomorrow. And that was basically it for more than half a year. No one ever came looking for me and I went on with my life like nothing had happened. I thought about the guy pretty regularly, obviously. I felt really bad about what had happened to him, but my reasoning that night still rang true. What would it fix for me to ruin my life along with his? And so I went to work and went out with my friends, and it just became one of those stories you sometimes think about but never tell anyone. It was sometime in late summer that the bathroom sink clogged up. I was washing my hands and the water wasn't draining well, so I popped out the plug to see what was in there. I could see a dark mass not too far down and with the help of a bent clothes hanger I hooked it and fished it out. It came out slimy, black and dripping and at first I thought it was something moldy that had gotten stuck in the pipe. I poked at it trying to figure out what had gotten into the pipe and as the individual strands separated I realized it was a wad of hair. As I teased it apart, the white porcelain of the sink around it began to turn slightly pinkish. Then I understood that the hair wasn't black at all. It was brown, stained dark with the deep red of blood. Before I could process this, I saw a glint of something else in the pipe and glanced at it. There, staring up at me from the dark, was an eyeball. The eye was green and familiar. It focused on me as I looked down, and it blinked. I shouted, I'm sure, and leaped back, faced with something like that. Who wouldn't? Then my heart, hammering, I stepped forward and twisted the hot water knob as far as it would go. The water sluiced from the faucet and into the sink, breaking up the hair clog and washing it down to drown the staring eye. Steam rose from the sink and the water washed down easily now, but I still let it run for long enough that the mirror had fogged up by the time I turned off the water. I told myself I'd imagined it. I told myself it was nothing. But when I turned on the water later that night to take a shower, the tub gurgled and started to back up instead of draining. I turned off the water and left the house. I went to a Starbucks to get a cup of coffee, to have a place to sit down and calm my nerves. It was a simple black coffee, nothing fancy. I watched them take the cup off the stack and pour the coffee in. And yet, when I settled into a chair and started to drink it, I was only three sips in when I felt something stringy against my tongue. I opened my mouth and plucked out a hair. Brown and much longer than mine. I'd say shoulder length, maybe a little longer. Two of the baristas had long blonde hair, and the other had a shaved head and a red beard. I didn't open up the cup to see what else was in my coffee. I just threw it away and left. I slept fitfully that night, with dreams of a man too badly broken to stand, dragging himself through a weed-choked ditch at the side of a road. Where he passed, the grass shone red with his blood, but although it stretched out behind him as far as the eye could see, he still crawled onward at a snail's pace. The next morning I poured cereal for my breakfast and bit down on something hard a few bites in. I spit out a cracked tooth and felt around with my tongue to determine which tooth had broken. It wasn't until I spotted the other broken teeth bobbing in the cereal bowl that I realized it wasn't mine. I poured the uneaten cereal into the kitchen sink, which bubbled and refused to drain. I left it and went to work. Work was no better. I could hear his voice throughout the day when no one else was around, sighing beneath the air conditioning and whispering words I couldn't quite understand. Ignoring it was impossible, so I tried to spend as much time around my co-workers as I could for the sake of my sanity. At lunch, I was starving, so I got a roast beef sandwich from the cafeteria. I sat with my office mate, Evander, and tried to hide my reaction when I bit down and immediately felt long hairs in my mouth again. He saw me make a face, though, and asked, well, What's up? Oh, I earned my food. I mumbled, oh, Gross, man. He made a sympathetic face. I felt sauce drip down my palm from the sandwich and moved my napkin to catch it before it hit the table. The napkin came away dark and sticky with blood. I looked at Evander, who was in the middle of eating his own sandwich, and had not noticed. I quietly wrapped the napkin up with the uh, Sandwich and the paper it had come in. Not hungry? asked Evander. I shook my head. I left work early and headed home. I opened my front door and paused. The house smelled like an abattoir, a thick carnivore smell. I stepped cautiously inside, leaving the door open behind me. From the front hallway, I could see into the kitchen where the faucet was dripping into the sink. Fat red drops gathered on the end before dropping ponderously into the stainless steel surface below, landing with a heavy splat. I could hear a noise from upstairs, the sound of something heavy being dragged incredibly slowly across the floor. I got back into my car and drove away. That was maybe four months ago, and I've been on the road since. I can eat as long as it's in a new place, can shower and wash up, as long as I haven't been staying anywhere too long. But any time I settle down for more than a few days, I start to find hairs in my food and quiet noises in the silence. I thought I knew what he wanted. I thought he was ruining my life. Not allowing me to live where he had died, but it's worse than that. This morning I woke up in a roadside motel where I'd been staying for the last three days. I checked the drain, examined the toothpaste carefully before brushing my teeth, and everything seemed fine. But when I rinsed, spit, and looked up at myself in the mirror, I froze. The face in the mirror was definitely mine. Hollow cheeks, brittle hair, toothpaste dripping down my chin, but the green eyes, staring back, were his. He's not looking to ruin my life. He seems he agrees with me. No sense in ruining two lives when one of us can still go on. We're just in disagreement about who gets to live. So I confess to the awful thing I did a year ago, both the accident and the aftermath. I will say it to the papers, to a judge, to a jury. Let everyone know who I am and what I did. Lock me up. Make me pay for my crime because maybe if I can ruin my life after all, he won't want it anymore. I hope you enjoyed No Sense Ruining Two Lives, as written by author Micah Edwards and performed by yours truly. You know, it's a real shame. You do one mercy killing to make your life a little easier, and the newly deceased doesn't even bother to thank you for what you did. I tell you, nobody appreciates the little things. Well, sometimes it is the little things that matter. In our third story from Micah Edwards, we are about to find out a little bit more about Taylor, if that is his real name, and his very persistent marketing calls, To a 911 operator. Sure, nobody at the call center is buying. But he does seem to be selling a bit more than your usual telemarketing services. Without further ado, I present to you... This is Taylor. 911 gets three kinds of calls. There's the someone-needs-help call, obviously... That's the sort that most of our training deals with, and it's the kind that everyone pictures first when they think of 911. You could, if you wanted, subdivide these calls into actual problems and people who need to learn to solve their own issues. But the people calling in legitimately think they need our help, so I'm keeping them lumped together here. Then there's the wrong number category. Again, you could split this up into stayed on the line to apologize and hung up and made us send police. But it's all the same idea. You'd be surprised how much of our training focuses on these, too. With the folks who stay on to apologize, you have to absolve them of their guilt, so they'll hang up quickly and not tie up the line. With the ones who hang up, you have to learn to manage your own panic, at least early on, They often won't pick up when you call back, so then you end up running through worst-case scenarios in your head, thinking that if only you'd been able to pick up a second sooner, you might have saved someone's life. In the end, the police would nearly always find that there was nothing wrong. When I started, we had an entire seminar on how not to wind yourself up over nothing. It didn't really help, but at least it was a nice thought. And then there are spam calls. You know, the reason that no one picks up their phone for unknown numbers anymore. But while you can just thumb ignore and drop the phone unanswered, we don't get that luxury. We answer every call that comes in. No blocking numbers, no screening. Spam accounts for over half of the phone calls these days. And while some of the robo-dialers are smart enough to exclude our numbers. Plenty either don't know enough or don't care enough. So, several times during every shift, I end up having a conversation like this. Them. Yes, this is such and such with the IRS. Your payment is overdue. Me. Do you know it's a felony to call 911 without an emergency? Now, you would think that'd be the end of it. There'd be a click, the call would end, I'd move on with my day. But in fact, most of them will argue with me over it, telling me that they know what number it called, and it wasn't 911. I used to try to explain that 911 was a relay number and that our phones had actual, unpublished numbers as well, but those explanations never went anywhere. Now mainly I just say, please stay on the line, we're tracing this call. That tends to get a pretty immediate hang-up. A couple of months back, though, I got a guy persistent enough to stay through even that line. The call started off like they all do. This is Taylor with Microsoft, and we've been getting reports that your PC is infected. Sir, this is 911. Please hang up. If you don't have an emergency... He brushed right past my line like I hadn't said anything. I can provide help with this problem. Are you at your computer? I am. I'm in a dispatch center for 911. Go ahead, stay on the line. We'll be tracing this call. Oh, you don't need to lie to me. I'm trying to help. Me helping you is going to solve your problem. I need you to listen carefully. I need you to get off the phone. People have real emergencies. Listen, you don't want my help? Assuming you do not treat this problem, there's nothing wrong with my computer and you're not with Microsoft. There was a pause, a sigh, and a click as the call ended. As the day went on, though, I kept coming back to that call in my mind. It wasn't just that he'd been more persistent than usual. There'd been something odd about his cadence. It had a thick Indian accent, so maybe I'd just been imagining it and it was just a normal pattern for him. Still, it kept eating at me. Eventually, I pulled up the audio recording to listen to it again and ease my mind. The first line sounded normal, and I felt foolish for how much brain space I devoted to this. But as I was reaching to stop the recording, he started the second line. There was a clear emphasis on provide help. His whole line had been, I can provide help, but the I can had been mumbled. Was he asking for help? I played it back several times. There was a small but definite pause after the word help, too. It didn't sound accidental. I let the recording play on and became convinced that the pause I'd heard was intentional. There were more like it, odd moments that broke up the flow of the sentences, to emphasize certain words, almost always around the word Help. Two sentences ran together to make the phrase, help me. Another, if you took just the first syllable of the next word, assuming was help us. I played the recording over and over. I couldn't be imagining this. He'd even said, I need you to listen carefully. I'd missed it. He called in needing help, and I'd shoot him away. I checked the call location information, but it just pointed to an office center in Texas. It was possible that this guy was in Texas, but it was a lot more likely that he was just where the call was being routed through. I had nothing, no way to trace this at all. I barely slept that night thinking about how I'd screwed up. How desperate do you have to be to start sneaking coded messages into your speech, hoping that someone picks up on it? and if they do understand, how are they supposed to do anything? Through sheer luck, he'd gotten through to 911, to maybe the only person who could have helped, and I'd missed it. This guy was still trapped in whatever conditions had caused him to reach out like this, because I hadn't understood. Still trapped, if he was lucky, maybe. If someone there had picked up on his hints, he could be dead. Morning came, and I dragged myself to work. I told myself that it wasn't my fault, that I couldn't always save everyone. I put on a fake smile from my co-workers and manned the phones, and even I didn't realize exactly how much it had depressed me until I answered one call and heard a familiar voice. This is Taylor with MasterCard, and we're calling to make you a special offer. My heart leaped. Taylor, I can help you. Click. The line went dead. "'Stupid, stupid!' I hissed at myself. Obviously, he was afraid that someone was listening in, or he wouldn't have been trying to hide his message in the first place. And here I was, just announcing everything to anyone that might be on the line. Still, he knew at least that his message had gotten through. He'd called back before. I had to believe he would do it again. I checked the call location again, figuring that If it was the same place, I could at least get a local officer to go take a look. No luck. This time it claimed to have originated from Seattle. I was going to have to figure out some other way to get the location. It was two days before Taylor called back again. I wanted to let you know that your automobile insurance is about to lapse. Yeah? I asked, my heart beating fast. I tried to sound like an average call. You don't sound like you're with my insurance company. Are you in India? India? Uh Ah, Taylor said. You mean my accent? I'm in Macon. Yes, I am. Come on, not with an accent like that. I pressed him. Where are you really? Macon, he insisted. It's where Geico is. You can Google it if you like. Geico's not even my insurance company, I said. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have made a mistake. Click. Once again, I found myself listening to the recording, trying to discover what I'd missed. It Turned out that Geico did have a large call center in Georgia, but I doubted that that was the real answer. It was too easy. It also didn't make any sense. Georgia certainly had its problems, but it seemed unlikely that they were imprisoning anyone in call centers. The only thing that I noticed about the call was that Taylor had pronounced am. Oddly, the first two times he'd said it, almost like he was starting to say ambulance. He used the word again at the end of the call, and it didn't have that subtle B sound that time. It was definitely a hint, but I had no idea what to do with it. I tried Googling it, as he suggested, but it just brought up random words and celebrities starting with A and B. I tried a few other things, but kept coming up blank Finally, out of frustration, I just started typing in the entire transcript of the call, one line at a time. When I started the second line, I only got two words in before Google's autosuggest turned India-a into india Ahmedabad." A quick trip to Wikipedia told me that this was a major city in India, and I started to feel hopeful before I realized that it was home to over 6 million people. That was a lot like narrowing down the call to somewhere in New York City. On a hunch, I added Am to the end of my India Ahmedabad search string. Google suggested Bank of India, Abawadi, Ahmedabad. Probably Taylor wasn't calling from the Bank of India, but the important information there was there was a neighborhood in Ahmedabad called Ambawadi. This was a much more reasonable area to search. At least, so it seemed to me. It took several weeks of arguments for me to convince my superiors that there was something to this. Everyone admitted that it was odd that Taylor kept calling back regularly. But not everyone agreed with my conclusions, no matter how many times I played the recordings. Still, the small clues kept piling up and confirming each other, And finally, someone with enough pull managed to get their counterparts in India to agree to go track down this call center. Taylor called in the day before it was all supposed to happen, telling me that my refrigerator was under a recall notice. Listen, buddy, I told him. I know what you're up to. If you ever call here again, so help me, I will come find where you are and drag you out into the street. Sir, your threats do not bother me. I will be waiting. Not for long, I snarled. He hung up the phone. I let out my breath in a whoosh. All I could do at this point was hope. The next day, it was all over the news. The IPS had raided an office building in Ahmedabad and discovered an entire floor of people who'd been kidnapped and forced to work there. They were literally chained to their desks during the day, and had nearby cots where they were tethered at night. All of them were emaciated, and nearly all bore open wounds or missing digits from where they'd been punished for one infraction or another. I saw the news and I wondered which one was Taylor. Obviously, it wasn't his real name. Probably I'd never know. I was rereading the article when the phone rang. This is Taylor with Microsoft. We've been getting reports that your PC's infected. Have they raided the wrong center? How many of these could there possibly be? Maybe they just missed a floor or something. I swallowed my panic and tried to respond normally. What's wrong with it? It's generating some very grave reports. I think the problem might be worse than you expect. Can you let me dig around in the files... I don't think I can give you that access. If I do not get behind the system files, I cannot show you how deep the problem lies. I'll take a look at myself, I said. Thank you for letting me know. After some convincing, the IPS returned to the office building and searched in the lot behind it. They discovered dozens of bodies buried in a mass grave jumbled together and left to rot. Most looked like they had been severely beaten, then dumped in a hole either already dead or to die of their wounds. They still wore the bloody clothes they had died in. A few even still had their phone headsets clamped around their heads. We still get spam calls at work, and I still threaten the callers with tracing the call, but I always listen closely to how they respond to the words they chose never know who might be calling out for help, or how hard they've had to work to reach you. I hope you enjoyed This is Taylor by author Micah Edwards, as performed by yours truly. Turns out Taylor was a bit cleverer than the usual salesperson. For one thing, he didn't try to update anyone's Google listing. That's a surefire way to get your potential savior to hang up on you. But you know, sometimes I can't figure out all this technology. Phones by themselves, that's one thing. But GPS systems? Always trying to get you there a little faster. Looking ahead and trying to calculate the best route. I mean, how do they do it? I mean, they can't always be perfect. In fact, some attempts to cut corners can be downright disturbing. Prepare for a bumpy ride in our fourth selection from Micah Edwards with a fellow who didn't even want to be on the road tonight. Without further ado, I present to you Shortcut. And I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death and hell followed with him. Book of Revelation, Chapter 6, Verse 8 Alert! Traffic ahead. Estimated travel time has increased by 15 minutes. Simon sighed and drummed his fingers on his steering wheel. The traffic wasn't ahead so much as it was here, no matter what the GPS thought. He was sitting in the middle of it, creeping forward at what felt like a walking pace. He tried to leave late in the day to avoid traffic, but clearly other people had the same idea. "'Alert! Traffic ahead! Estimated travel time has increased by seven minutes!' "'I didn't even want to be here,' thought Simon. His sister's annual tacky sweater party was not, to his mind... A good enough reason to drive four hours up Interstate 95. But it was family tradition, as his mother had acerbically reminded him over the phone. And not having her harp on him for months on end was absolutely a good enough reason for a four-hour drive. Or so it had seemed at the time. Now, drifting along at dusk in a river of brake lights, Simon was reconsidering. Alert! traffic ahead. Estimated travel time has increased by 28 minutes. Simon angrily rapped the find alternate routes button, not for the first time on this trip. As before, the GPS paused for a moment before responding with a cheery, no better route found in its unpleasant near human voice. Try again, Simon snarled, hammering on the button as if hitting it multiple times, would make it work harder or find something new. Deep breaths, he remembered, calming himself. Getting mad at inanimate objects is foolish and unproductive. My energies can be better spent by considering the situation and searching. New route found, chirped the GPS, interrupting Simon's train of thought. Estimated arrival time, 6.52 p.m. Would you like to take this? A wash of relief hit Simon. Yes, he exclaimed, tapping the OK prompt. The line on the map shifted, veering off to the right. In one quarter of a mile, exit onto Old Chapel Road. With a happy sigh, Simon maneuvered his way over and exited the freeway traffic jam. Driving even 35 miles per hour on the two-lane road was an almost palpable joy after the freeway's glacial pace. He'd barely gotten up to speed, though, when a crossroads appeared ahead, marked by a stop sign. On the right side of the road stood a dilapidated gas station, in poor enough condition that Simon was unsure if it was open. The prices seemed about right, though, and his tank was at a quarter full, so he pulled in to stretch his legs and hopefully fill up the tank before continuing on. Although the setting sun was still visible... The station stood in deep shadow, loomed over by an imposing, crumbling church on the opposite side of the road. Electric lights gleamed fitfully above the single pump and inside the ramshackled convenience store. The gas pump had no place to swipe a credit card, but its display glowed to life when Simon lifted the nozzle and raised the handle, so he plugged it into his tank and waited for it to fill. As Simon waited, he found his gaze irresistibly drawn to the church across the way. Something about the towering structure demanded his attention. The setting sun backlit the church, casting the front into blackness even as it lit the huge stained-glass windows, portals of fire set in a coal-black facade. Even with the shadows still in detail, though, the church's decay was evident. The edges of the roof showed clear disrepair. Occasional panes were broken out of the windows, and the whole chapel was leaning forward slightly, as if intent on whispering a secret to the gas station. Simon couldn't shake the uncomfortable feeling that the church was leaning closer even as he watched, or that he was being somehow drawn into it. The flare of color from its windows caught his eyes, pinning his attention, holding him in place as the building slowly loomed nearer and nearer. Its doors were in front of him, and its walls were folding in around him like leathery wings as the doors started to crack open. He could smell the church's awful cold breath, a stench of decay and horrible anticipation. Behind Simon, the gas pump thunked heavily as the automatic shutoff disengaged the flow of gas, startling him out of his reverie. He was still standing at the car, neither he nor the church having moved, and he laughed anxiously at his daydream as he uncoupled his car from the pump and headed inside to pay. The door opened reluctantly to reveal a store that, like the exterior of the station, appeared at first glance to be abandoned. Although the lights were on, every drink cooler was dark and silent, "'clearly not running. "'No music played over the speakers, "'no newspapers sat in the racks, "'and the shelves were dusty "'and stacked with products two or more years "'past their expiration dates. "'Were it not for the balding man "'staring at him from behind the counter, "'there would have been nothing to suggest "'that the store was open, "'instead of having been accidentally left unlocked "'when it was shut down. "'Simon fumbled for his wallet "'as he approached the counter,' pulling out cash. This didn't look like the sort of place that took credit cards, and he wanted to make this transaction as swift as possible. The man behind the counter stirred from his inanimate state as Simon neared him, slowly coming to life like a robot powering on. Pump 1, uh the only pump, said Simon, dropping the bills on the counter. The man's eyes never left Simon's face as his hand spidered across the counter, the fingertips filling their way towards the money. He touched each bill in turn before picking them up, then rang up the charge on the cash register and began counting out the change, tallying a running total of each bill and coin aloud in a dusty voice. All the while he stared straight ahead, eyes locked with Simon's, Simon wondered if the attendant was blind, but as he shifted uneasily from foot to foot, the man's eyes tracked his unerringly. The attendant pushed the change across the counter to Simon, who took it and automatically said, "'Enjoy your night.' A small smile started to form on the man's face. "'Enjoy your night,' he repeated in a rasp. The smile grew slowly wider then wider still. Enjoy your night. Simon grinned nervously back at him, backing out of the store as the attendant's lips peeled back into a his mouth stretching to reveal yellowed teeth and reddened gums. As Simon reached the door and turned to escape, he saw a trickle of blood forming at the center of the attendant's lower lip, where the skin had cracked, but his smile was still widening. Enjoy your night, he called one last time as Simon forced the door open and fled into the parking lot. The decrepit church loomed over Simon as he fumbled with his keys, but he steadfastly refused to look at it or to turn his gaze back to the store. He kept his focus on his hands until he was in the car, then on the road immediately ahead until he was through the crossroads and the church was safely behind him. Only then did he raise his eyes to the rearview mirror and for a moment he had a terrifying idea that he would see the church as he had seen it while pumping gas. Looming tall and immediate over the back of his car, its doors opening like a toothless maw to swallow him whole. The vision popped like a soap bubble as he instead only saw the road behind him with the church and the gas station growing small in the distance just as they should. Simon breathed a sigh of relief, even as he laughed off at this ridiculous idea. With the terror he'd felt receding as quickly as the buildings behind him, the whole thing suddenly felt blown out of proportion. One weird guy in one weird building. Well, two. I'm suddenly paranoid. Should have picked up some tinfoil at that station to make a hat. The GPS suddenly spoke up again. In a half-mile, take a right onto State Route 117. A quick look at the map overview suggested that this path would roughly parallel the freeway for some time, following the roads which had existed before the interstate system was put into place. On the map, the freeway still glowed red with traffic, and Simon was happy to follow the country roads until that cleared up. On an ordinary day, the freeway might be a vastly superior method of getting from place to place, but when it backed up, it was good to have a program that knew alternate ways around. In two miles, make a left onto State Road 84. The hilly road hid the turn up ahead, undulating up and down as it snaked over uneven ground and twisted through alternating fields and clusters of forest. Over the field, Simon could still see the freeway off in the distance laden with cars. How is the freeway so flat, he wondered, when it's so nearby? The landscape can't be that different over there. Better machines and better paving, I suppose. Also, the advantage of starting fresh, these country roads have probably been here since Johnny Appleseed trampled down the grass, walking up and down these hills. They've just been expanded outwards, Widen, but they're still the same underneath. In .1 miles, make a left onto unnamed road. Simon cast a sharp look at the GPS. Had it just stuttered? The last thing he needed was to be stranded out in the middle of the country with his technological guide on the fritz. Everything seemed fine on the display, though, so it had probably just been a momentary error. Anyway, he just stopped for gas, and it wasn't like there was a lot of intersections to confuse him if he ended up needing to backtrack. So Simon put the thought from his mind as he turned down the indicated road. If the earlier country roads were walking trails that had outgrown their origins, then this one was much closer to its roots. It was probably intended to be two lanes, but no one had bothered to paint any lines down its center, Simon had doubts that two vehicles of any significant size could pass each other without trading paint or making dangerous use of the shoulders of the road. Or one shoulder, anyway. Although the right side appeared basically open and serviceable, if muddy, the left side hosted a small country graveyard perilously close to the asphalt. The nearest headstones couldn't have been more than three feet off the road, and in the fading daylight and the brief flash as his headlights crossed them, Simon couldn't be certain that he was looking at the backs of the stones. He sincerely hoped that he was, though, because otherwise the road had been paved right over the foot of the graves. Simon toyed with that thought for a moment, uncomfortable without being quite sure why. Bodies were bodies and bones were bones and the world was built over hidden corpses and forgotten burials from earlier eras. There was something more immediate about this, though, that made it seem worse. It was the grave markers he decided. There was no forgotten gravesite. The people who put in the road knew that the graves were there and still ran the road insultingly close to those final resting places. It seemed indecent and Simon told himself that it was because it was unkind to those who were still alive who might come to see their relative, their mother or father, and have the exhaust of passing trucks belched in their faces as they kneeled at the grave. Of course, he mused, it was probably local labor that put this road in. The people who paved this road are probably descended from the ones in the cemetery. Inane, though the thought was, it helped. At least that way it wasn't an inexorable external force imposing itself unbidden, sacrificing the past to feed the all-consuming present. If the road ran too close to the cemetery, it was by choice of those who the cemetery was for. It wasn't up to Simon to apologize or judge. The road was here because there. this was where they wanted it. Although, Looking around, he couldn't see that they'd necessarily had a lot of choice. The graveyard was surprisingly expansive, and though Simon had turned down this road easily a half mile ago, the graves still crowded up against the left side of the road, tombstones jostling for space like tourists, peering in at a strange exhibition. For a one-road town, I sure had a lot of people die here, thought Simon, The comment was meant to be a humorously wry observation, but even inside of his own head, it seemed ominous and threatening. A curve ahead allowed the headlights to spill off of the road, illuminating hundreds of tombstones stretching out into the dark, each one standing silent sentinel over a dead body. Each one marked a spot where a once-living person had been buried in the ground. "'left to wither and rot until nothing of them remained in the world, "'neither work nor word, "'and all that remained to show that they had ever lived "'was a chiseled rock mounted over the spot "'where they had been consigned to the earth.' "'Simon shook himself mentally and turned on the radio "'to chase the unnerving images in his head. "'He set it to seek, "'and as the radio flipped through static in search of a station,' "'Putting out a decent signal, "'Simon wondered what was wrong with his thoughts tonight. "'It was unlike him to turn so morbid at the sight of a few graves. "'He tried to think of his niece and nephew "'who were waiting for him at the end of the trip "'and of the hideous sweaters his sister had no doubt delighted in finding for them. "'But his mind kept interrupting with thoughts of the horrible old church from before.' Its image was as clear as if he was still looking at it. The stained-glass windows inflamed with its shadowed walls, but its shadow was filled with tombstones, and it reached out to cover the entire world. The radio relieved the silence by cutting in on the middle of a Beatles song, slightly staticky, but acceptably so. It seen porters with looking-glass ties— Suddenly someone is there at the turnstile, the girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Simon relaxed to the familiar song, settling back in his seat and letting go of a tension he hadn't realized had been building up in his back. And then terror wrapped icy hands around his spine at the next line. Guess who's gonna die? It's Simon. He sat bolt upright, his eyes jerking involuntarily to the radio, as if he could hear better by staring at it. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Lucy in the sky with diamonds, sang the radio as if nothing was wrong. That is not what I heard, Simon said aloud, shakily. On the radio, John crooned on a gentle denial of the words Simon thought he'd heard. As the song spun on, it became easier to believe that it really had been nothing but a strange artifact of the static, a momentary distortion of the words coupled with the creepy ambiance of the graveyard, at night leading to that patently ridiculous mishearing of the lyrics. "'People who think that the radio is talking to them are crazy, Simon,' Simon said to himself. "'Get a grip.' "'What? Are you afraid of the dark all of a sudden?' The GPS chose this moment to chime in, speaking over the radio. In one mile, stay straight on the unnamed road. Simon glared at the device. He considered smacking it to attempt to resettle whatever was causing it to glitch, but restrained himself with an effort. Deep breaths. The GPS might be repeating syllables, but it was still tracking him clearly along the road which was the most important function, even if it was telling him useless directions, like, don't stop driving forward. Not like there's anywhere else to go, thought Simon. The graveyard still stretched past the reach of his lights, alongside the road, stone teeth marching into oblivion. Somewhere along the way he'd lost the lights of the freeway, And was the road slightly narrower than it had started? Before, it had seemed unlikely that two trucks could pass each other. Now, Simon was pretty sure that even two sedans couldn't manage it, not without pulling off the shoulder. And when had there begun to be graves on the right side of the road, too? Simon could feel his breath coming faster, his heartbeat accelerating. "'This is stupid. It's a country road.' A country road through the world's largest graveyard. And why had it gotten so dark suddenly? Surely dusk should have lasted longer than this. Nothing was right here. Simon could feel a cold breeze on the back of his neck, and the air in the car stank of the rot that had emanated from the church when its doors had opened to swallow him inside. That was a daydream. It never happened. And then Simon let out a strangled grunt, a guttural sound of fear, for as his eyes flickered to the rearview mirror, he saw there, cyclopean and terrible, the church. It loomed behind him, impossibly close, casting its shadow ahead to envelop his car. The steering wheel jerked under his grip, and he fought to keep the car in the road as he recovered from his panic and when he felt the temptation to look into the mirror again grow strong in his mind, he grunted once more and backhanded the mirror from the windshield before he could succumb. The mirror rebounded off the far window of the car with the sound of breaking glass bouncing off of a passenger seat and tumbled into the footwell, the cracked face winking up at Simon as it fell. Simon struggled to get his breathing back under control, to relax his foot from the accelerator and loosen his death grip on the steering wheel. The sound on the radio faded, came back, then slipped beneath the static waves, leaving only a quiet hissing from the speakers. In one quarter mile, stay straight on unnamed Amid Amid Road. Simon was preparing to fiddle with the radio when suddenly, his attention was jerked back to the road in front of him, by something up ahead in the road, a long, dark streak reaching diagonally across the asphalt. It glistened in its headlights with a reddish hue, a two-foot-wide ragged ribbon crawling out of the darkness. Somebody hit a deer, wounded it, and it dragged itself away, Simon told himself, slowing his speed as he scanned the side of the road for the unfortunate animal. The streak of blood went on and on, An incredible amount. In one-tenth of a mile, stay straight on an unnamed road. Stop telling me that, Simon growled at the GPS. Up ahead, an indistinct figure sprawled against one of the tombstones hugging the right side of the road. As he drew closer, Simon's stomach gave a sickening lurch. It was no deer. Someone had hit a person and left her to die. In fifty feet, stay, 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 stay! Ignoring the malfunctioning GPS, Simon put the car in park and jumped out, hurrying around the front of his car to where the woman lay in a tangle of limbs and blood-soaked cloth, her once white dress torn and stained with blood and the dirt of a quarter mile of road. He fumbled in his pocket for his phone to call 911, knowing even as he pulled it out that it was far too late. No one could have lost that much blood and lived. But he reached for her neck anyway to check for a pulse. Instead of skin, Simon's hand touched something hard and knobbly, and tiny pinpricks wrapped around his fingers. He jerked his hand back in surprise, knocking into the woman's chin and lolling her head back. Beneath the tumbled hair, instead of a woman's face a skeleton leered up at him. Its bones yellowed, the remains of its skin leathery and ripped. It was covered with the dirt of the grave, wearing not a white dress, but instead a winding sheet. Inside its skull, things clicked and shuffled away from the light. And to his horror, Simon saw that when he had touched its neck, a beetle had climbed onto his hand and was currently trying to scuttle up his sleeve. He shrieked and leaped back, shaking his arm and sending the beetle flying into the night. At his feet, the blood-stained corpse rustled in its sheet. Simon looked down in disgust, thinking to see more bugs. But his phone dropped from his nerveless fingers. As he saw it reach a rotting hand up to the tombstone, it rested against and slowly began to haul itself to its feet. The thing had made it to its knees before Simon shook off his paralysis and fled for his car, thankful that he had left the door open, he gunned the gas and sped away as the creature twisted and lunged for the door. Its fingers scrabbled just inches from the handle as the car roared by, spinning the corpse off to crash back against the graves. Go 19 miles, then stray state on unnamed road. Impossible, impossible. Simon's mind gibbered as he fled down the road, spitting past rank after rank of tombstones, sepulchers, and mausoleums. Simon felt for his phone to call for help, to call his sister, to call anyone, but it was lying in the road where he had dropped it, and there was no way he was going back for it, even if it hadn't probably been run over when he peeled out. Or even if he could go back for that matter. The road was even narrower now, barely more than a single lane, and the graves began scant feet from Simon's car on either side. With careful back and forth, a car could still be turned around here, but Simon had already crossed two more bloody streaks, and things were moving in the night at the edges of his vision. Terrified, he pressed harder on the gas pedal, hoping to simply outrun whatever was happening. As he hurtled on, the road closed in still further, dropping to a single lane. A milky white moon drifted up over the horizon, casting light across the landscape, and Simon gasped in horror. The graveyard surrounded him as far as he could see, stretching to the horizon. Rounded rectangles of marble and granite massed upon the bleak dead ground with larger shapes of tombs and crypts Hunched at intervals, stony giants skulking along the ground. Pillars, obelisks, and statues on plinths rose among them like orators, addressing a crowd. And in their shadows, avoiding even the moonlight, creatures less than human moved with an unseemly grace. Through the whispering static on the radio, a lone church bell began tolling. The sound was low and sonorous, filling the car and infusing the caesaurus of the static with a feeling of malice. Simon slapped at the console until the radio shut off, but the sound continued as somewhere out in the moonlit darkness the bell of that terrible church knelled. In response, the creatures came forth from the shadows to chorus across the graveyard, hellish servants responding to their master's call. They were made of bones and rags, bound together with grave worms and pieces of shrouds, and yet they moved like water flowing downhill, smoothly and with deceptive speed. Their bones whispered against each other as they ran, making a kind of music. The song it sang was of death, not merely of a person, but of humanity itself, of the entire world, of the planets and the sun and all the stars, It sang of an empty universe, cold and forgotten, with the shadow of the graveyard enshrouding it all. And beneath it all was glee, desire, and a frightening belief that this was how things should always have been, that life was a mistake and death the true state of things. Again and again the bell tolled, a constant backbeat to the song of the bones, the corpses ran up and over the hills of the graveyard, massing in even greater numbers. Simon drove on in terror, hands white-knuckled on the steering wheel, trying and failing to ignore that hell itself was rising outside of his car. The road began to rise, and Simon found himself driving across a berm separating the two sides of the cemetery. It was only inches wider than his car. The slightest mistake would send him tumbling down a hillside into the graves below. It writhed sinuously across the graveyard, lazy curves daring Simon to maintain his speed and risk the plummet. Simon slowed as much as he dared, speeding up again after each curve in a futile attempt to increase the distance between his car and the tide of monsters. Below him a deep howl began to grow rising as one from the throats of the pursuing creatures. Where the bones whispered of death, this sang of blood, hot and cloying, viscous rivers of it washing across the world. Simon shivered uncontrollably and stepped on the accelerator again, risking the corners a bit faster. In one half mile, don't look back. Simon's eyes flew instinctively to where the rearview mirror should be but found nothing but the stump of the handle sticking from the windshield. He flicked his eyes to each side mirror, but saw nothing but the glint of bone and stone as moonlight beamed off of the army behind him. A rumble began to grow, almost subsonic, shaking the car as if an earthquake was starting. Panicked, Simon twisted around to see what was happening, taking his eyes from the road. Don't, 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 don't. The GPS chanted mindlessly, but Simon had already looked and was transfixed by the sight. Behind him, the ground itself was rising, heaping up in great grave-covered hillocks, as if something titanic were rising from beneath it. The truth he soon saw was even worse. The graveyard itself was standing, forming into a colossal creature, that drew from the ground around it to grow continuously larger. The army of corpses swarmed at its feet like cockroaches, sliding seamlessly aside to avoid each tremendous step as it strode above them. It moved amorphously, flowed from step to step with ever-changing limbs, and with each stride it closed the distance between itself and Simon. The only constants in its body were its eyes, which burned like the stained-glass windows of the church and which were fixed unerringly on Simon. Turn right on unnamed road. Simon's attention was jolted back by the GPS's unusually strident cry, just in time to feel his left wheel leave the road and spin uselessly on the grass. He jerked the wheel to the right as the back left tire joined the front on the grassy slope, and the car tilted sickingly to the side. No, 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 screamed Simon, hauling on the wheel, and the car lurched back onto the road, now angled to shoot directly off the right side. He screamed again, wordlessly this time, pulling the wheel back to the left and stomping on the accelerator as if it could save him. The car fishtailed, but ended up back on the road, pointing straight along it, heart hammering, Simon accelerated once more, trying to uppace the ground-shaking steps behind it. Even with the car racing as fast as he dared go, Simon could feel the monster gaining on him. He began to smell the stale, dank air of the church's breath closing in around him, wrapping him in its awful miasma. The thought of breathing it in filled him with terror, and he held his breath as he drove onward even faster, Still the monster gained until the thudding of each step made the car jump and the wheel jerked slightly under Simon's hands. Black spots were beginning to dance in front of his eyes but he knew that to breathe in was death and so he grimly spurred the car even faster determined to make it as far as possible. If he was to succumb it would not be easily. Abruptly the GPS spoke up once more. In 100 feet turn left, left down no road Fifty feet! Left! Now! Now! Now!' There was nothing but graveyard to his left, but ahead of him. The road stretched on into the night, and Simon's lungs were burning. In desperation, he twisted the wheel to the left, and the car sailed off the road momentarily before jolting onto the hill with a crash that drove almost the last bit of air from Simon's lungs. Astoundingly, there was a walking path ahead of him, winding precariously through the tombstones.' Behind him, the monster roared in the blood howl of the corpse, ran under it like a promise of doom. Simon slalomed wildly through the graves, his throat clenched, as his lungs frantically tried to suck the air in, the world shaking footsteps of the monster crashing behind him, and then suddenly a black gate was before him. His car was bursting through. The airbags went off with the impact, and Simon gasped in a lungful of acrid chemical air. Coughing, he frantically pushed down the airbag, freed himself from his seatbelt, and leapt out of the car, falling to the ground in his haste to escape. His car, the front fender dented, and one headlight smashed out, sat in the entrance to the graveyard. A broken chain lay on the ground behind it, and the wrought iron gates hung open. The moon rode high in the sky, illuminating a queer scene. Peaceful graves, tastefully placed trees, a caretaker's house on a hill in the center. Nothing moved, nothing stirred. Shakily, Simon climbed back into his car and drove slowly to his sister's house. He left the radio off, and the silence was broken only by the occasional directions of the GPS. Pulling up to the gate of her community, he punched in the code for her townhouse, to be buzzed in. The speaker cracked to life. Simon, I'm glad you're here. Was traffic bad? The GPS spoke up once more. Resuming original path, this detour has saved you four minutes. Simon? Is that you, Simon? His sister asked. But Simon put his head down on the steering wheel and laughed until he wept. I hope you enjoyed Shortcut by author Micah Edwards as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Edwards. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Edwards. You'll be taken directly to his Amazon profile where you can find plenty of books for sale, though nothing that will summon anything from dark realms of the edge of the universe. At least not that I could find. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's books or stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let him know you heard about him on this program that me, Otis Chari, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Micah would much appreciate it as well. You can also find him at creepypastastories.com, our horror fiction website, where dozens of his work appears, 100% free, ready for you to sink your teeth into. I hope you enjoyed reading them as much as I did narrating them. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. I'd also like to take a moment before we go to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference... You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis gyrie Channel where you'll find releases of my series Horror Story time dating back to 2014 and you can find me on Facebook Twitter and Instagram too just search for Otis gyre until next week stay spooky and get some sleep if you can <laughs> But that's alright, who needs sleep anyway?